Hi, everyone. Quick intro to today's podcast. We've got a great show lined up for you where we're going to talk about constraints, internal constraints, external constraints. I'll share a Google slide length rule I used to have to deal with. Talk about how storyboarding may change everything you do going forward. And I'll also reveal the winners of the Audible Storytelling with Data book coming up next. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nissbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for joining me here on the Storytelling with Data podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about constraints. Now, I think it's interesting that when discussion and questions about constraints are brought up to me, it's nearly always in the form of a complaint. I don't have enough time, or the execs want to see it this certain way, or I only have a couple of slides, or I'm limited by my templates and tools. But I think constraints and the way that they help shape our decisions and our work can actually be really useful things. In fact, without constraints, the sheer amount of options can hinder progress. Let me go slightly off topic for a moment with a related personal example. Last year, my husband and I bought a house in the Midwest. It's near where my husband grew up and his side of the family is all there. As you maybe know, we have three small children, and so the idea of getting them closer to grandpa and grandma and aunts and uncles and cousins is really appealing. Uh, also appealing is the increase in the amount of space we'll have, uh, both indoors and out, relative to San Francisco. So we're currently renovating this house in the Midwest, and as anyone who's gone through a renovation or built a house probably knows, there are an insane amount of decisions to make and so many options to consider. Take paint, for example. I want to paint the new window trim and baseboards white. That should be easy, right? No. As it turns out, there are literally hundreds of different shades of white. And when I start to look at those hundred plus shades of white, the conversation in my head sounds like this. Maybe this one? No, I think that might be too pink. Oh, Zurich white has a nice ring to it. No, actually that looks too yellow. Bright white? Does that have a hint of blue in it? Uh, I can't tell. Let's look in some different light. Oh, actually now in this light, Zurich white looks pretty good. But will the light in the house be like this? I go through a few minutes of this, then give up and turn my attention onto something else. So in this way, the absence of constraints, too many options, hinders my ability to make progress. What do I do? I turn to our build design team and plead for help. They give me three whites to pick from that they've used before and been happy with and tell me they need me to make a decision now so they can order the paint. Ah, uh, yes, constraints. With fewer choices and a short timeline, I'm able to make the decision and be done with it. In that way, there can be incredible value in constraints, not only when it comes to home renovations, but in effectively communicating as well. There are different types of constraints. External constraints are those imposed by someone or something else. Internal constraints are those we impose upon ourselves. And I believe that if we're smart about how we impose constraints on our own work when it comes to communicating with data, that that can help prepare us to deal with those constraints that are less in our control. 
Today, we'll talk about some strategies for doing just that. I'll organize my thoughts into three main types of constraints. Time constraints, tool constraints, and space constraints. I've also received a ton of great questions at the Ask Cole alias lately, so we'll spend some time tackling listener Q&A as well. With that, let's jump in. Time constraints. So when I think of time, we typically face constraints in a couple of different areas. Uh, the time that we have to present or actually communicate, deliver the results, and then the time that it actually takes to create or prepare for that. Uh, and I'm going to start with the time to present piece first. Uh, a common mistake is that we go in to a meeting or a presentation with too much content and too little time. And so I think a really great solution here is to self-impose some time constraints, uh, which will help us be better at dealing with those time constraints that are less in our control. In my workshops, we talk about a couple strategies for doing this uh, that I want to talk through here today. The three-minute story and the big idea. The three-minute story is just what it sounds like. It's if you had three minutes to tell your audience what they need to know, what would you say? It's important in this boiled down version to know not only what are the critical components of content that have to be there, but also what are the less critical details that you can let go of in this highly condensed version. The three-minute story can be super useful if you find yourself riding in an elevator or walking from building to building with a stakeholder and want to give a quick update or get some feedback. Or if you find you're allotted 30 minutes on the meeting agenda, shrinking to 20 minutes, shrinking to 10 minutes, shrinking to 5 minutes. If you've already done this thought exercise, it means you know your stuff and then you can make it fit whatever time slot you need to. Now, the big idea boils the so what of the communication down even further. Big idea is a concept that Nancy Duarte talks about in her book, Resonate. She says the big idea has three components. It should articulate your unique point of view. It should convey what's at stake. And it should be a complete sentence. So in my workshops, we often go through an exercise to formulate the big idea for a current project of participants' choice. And so I give them a big idea worksheet that asks them about who their audience is, what they care about, what's at stake, some sort of leading questions uh, that culminate in the big idea. And they spend about 10 minutes filling out this worksheet and drafting their big idea. And then another five minutes talking through that with someone else and getting feedback. And now inevitably the discussion that we have after this, people talk about one, how hard it is to get it down to a sentence. But then also we have some interesting conversations about the clarity of thought that happens during that process and how imposing this really strict constraint of you only have a sentence uh, really helps people get clear on what is the big thing that I need to get across? What are all those details I can let go of? And now the big idea, it's never the only thing that you communicate, but it's more for you before you start putting together content so that you have a really clear goal in mind in terms of what you want to get across with that content. 
Because you can imagine if you can't clearly articulate your point in a single sentence, how in the world are you going to put together a deck or a report that's going to get that message across to someone else? So really limiting ourselves in this way brings this clarity of thought. And again, I think that when we've taken the time to go through these exercises, right, think about what would it sound like if I had three minutes? Or what would I say if I only had a sentence? Uh, helps us be able to deal with whatever comes our way in terms of the time constraints that are imposed on us. Uh, because once you've taken the time to do that, right, you've gotten it down to a sentence or three minutes, you can always add content, uh, add details, add more context or whatever the case may be. Um, but the reverse is harder, right? If we go into a meeting, we have an 80-page deck and we find, oh, we're only going to have 20 minutes to get through it. If we've not self-impose these time constraints ahead of time, that's going to be a really tough thing to do. Another interesting thing that happens, uh, I think with the big idea specifically, is when you've gotten that succinct on your message, now when it comes to putting content together, you have a built-in lipness test where you can ask yourself for any bit of content you consider creating or including, does this help me get my big idea across? So that's a bit on imposing constraints when it comes to helping us prepare for the time that we have to present and uh, things that may come out of left field when it comes to that in terms of having less time than we uh, prepare for. There's also the conundrum, though, of the time we have to actually create content, right? To visualize our data and to put that into slides or reports. Now, it's always been interesting to me because the typical process when we're uh, communicating with data, you know, typically you start off with a hypothesis or a question. Then you gather the data, you clean the data, you analyze the data. And at that point, we'll often put it in a graph, maybe outline some findings, and we stop there. When that graph is actually the only part of the entire process, right, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that our audience ever sees. And yet too often we get to that point and we find ourselves with no time left to do anything, right? No time left to iterate or uh, make sure that the piece that our audience does see is, says good things about the stuff that's happening behind the scenes. My point of view is we should spend at least as much time and effort on the visualizing and communicating piece of the analytical process as we do to all the stuff behind the scenes. But that said, time constraints often come up here. And typically, the lowest hanging fruit uh, in organizations that I encounter when it comes to the things that you can do that will have the maximum amount of impact uh, for the least amount of effort or time are two things, use of color and use of words. So first, color used sparingly to draw your audience's attention to where you want them to look. And secondly, words, either in your spoken narrative or written physically on the page or the slide, to tell your audience why you want them to look there. Those two things alone can go a tremendous way in terms of taking something that might otherwise been confusing or complicated and helping make it clear for your audience. So in a time-constrained environment, when it comes to the materials you're preparing, think about being strategic in your use of color and words. So it's a bit on time constraints. Let's shift now to talk about tool constraints. 
And now one constraint that comes up in this area, uh, I actually think is a false constraint, which is the tools that you have at your disposal. Uh, I sometimes hear things like, yeah, my company, we, we can only use this set of tools or my team only has Excel, for example, to choose from. And I, I think this is a false constraint because any tool can be used well and any tool can be used not so well. So for me, it's about picking a tool or a set of tools or you know, the ones that your organization or team uses and getting to know those as best you can so that they don't become limiting factors when it comes to communicating effectively. So I think the, the real constraint when it comes to tools is what you know how to do in your tools. And when it comes to that, there's another tool that I recommend using, and that is a blank piece of paper. There's something really interesting and freeing, I think, about drawing on paper. And now drawing is one of those interesting things because as children, everybody draws. And yet most of us stop doing that at some point over time, uh, which is a sad thing because if you have a blank piece of paper and you're sketching on it, there are a couple of nice things that happen. One, we have this blank open space that I think can help promote some creativity. Secondly, drawing on paper removes the constraints of our tools and what we know how to do in our tools. So if you can spend a little bit of time getting it right on paper, and the nice thing also is you don't have to get it right the first time, right? You don't have just a single piece of paper. You can have a whole stack of paper and start drawing. And maybe you draw a few iterations and correct things as you go to get to that view that's going to help you to create that sort of magical aha moment of understanding in your audience. And once you've done that on paper, then you can think of what tools or what internal or external experts do I have at my disposal that'll help me take that idea and turn it into reality. So blank piece of paper is a great tool anytime you're feeling constrained uh, or not sure what direction to go in when it comes to how to show your data or how to arrange things on a slide um, and really starting to design in that way and um, not thinking that you can't draw. Um, but being open to sketching things and it can look rough and that's totally fine. Another sort of tool-related constraint that we sometimes face is in the templates or branding, right? Companies go to great lengths and spend time and expenses uh, in creating branding, logos, templates, and so forth. And I think there's actually great value in using those things when it comes to you know, having a cohesive look and feel for work that's coming out of a company or a team. Uh, but they can sometimes feel constraining as well. And actually, I was at a workshop just yesterday uh, where we were talking through an example graph and some constraints of their templates came up. Now, this particular graph, it was uh, a line graph, had two lines. One was blue and the other was green. And the title of the graph was written in blue at the top. And so you, because of the similarity of color, you actually, you wanted to tie the blue words, the title at the top to the blue line in the graph. And so we started talking about this and I recommended, you know, if we have a descriptive graph title that's meant to describe the entire graph, maybe we use black there uh, so that we're not uh, associating it with either series of data. 
And one of the participants raised their hand and said, no, we actually can't do that because our template says that the graph title color has to be the same as the color we use in the graph. All right, well, that's an interesting constraint. Let's think creatively about how we might be able to do both of these things simultaneously, right? Communicate in an effective way and also it, within the, the confines or the constraints of our template. And so in that case, if we're strategic about where we use blue in the graph, then we could have a descriptive title at first and then follow that with the title in blue that actually is the takeaway title, describing what the blue in the graph tells us. And so in that way, we're able to make both of these things work in concert with each other, right? Where we're leveraging this visual tie that we get through using similar color between the words and the data, but then also working within the brand guidance um, that is uh, imposed by the organization. Now, on a related note, so we've talked about tools, templates. So we sometimes also face constraints in terms of the type of graph we're meant to use. Uh, sometimes other people impose those constraints, right? Your manager says, uh, no, I want to see it as a pie chart. Or, uh, you know, the committee has always looked at this data as a stacked bar, so we need to keep it a stacked bar. And I'm just making up a couple of examples here. Uh, but I think when it comes to graphs and if we're not able to use maybe what we think is the perfect graph for a situation, that, that can feel constraining. But there are still creative things that we can do in that case as well. Because even with the not perfect graph choice, uh, I think when we're smart about the other things we do with the graph, uh, coming back to this idea of color, you know, using it to focus our audience's attention where we want them to look, and words of explaining what we want them to see and why and what the main takeaway is, we can actually do these other things that can overcome um, you know, potential issues or it, it not being the perfect graph. So I think take the constraints that come to you, whether it's what you know how to do in your tools, the templates or logos and branding you're faced with, or the type of graph, and look at the constraints not as limiting, um, but rather as a way to help you be creative, right? Of given these constraints, how does it mean I can still effectively communicate with data? Uh, because I think oftentimes we say, oh, no, somebody says it has to be like this, and we sort of give up. Uh, whereas the constraints can help us come up with more interesting solutions, I think, sometimes. So we've talked about time constraints. We've talked about tool constraints. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about space constraints. This is an exclusive announcement for podcast listeners only. Uh, seriously, we haven't even shared this on the website. Are you tired of sitting through business presentations that confuse you with too much data and too little information? Would your organization benefit from the lessons of storytelling with data? Did you know that in addition to the full and half-day corporate workshops that are available, Storytelling with Data has launched some short-form introductory offerings including a 60-minute webinar and a two-hour in-person course on DataViz Basics. Your team will leave these sessions with a better understanding of the power of data storytelling with practical tips that can be put immediately into practice for your organization. To inquire about a session for your team or company, email inquiry at storytellingwithdata.com. Welcome back. 
So we're on the topic of constraints today. We've talked about self-imposing constraints as a way to be able to better deal with the limiting factors that are imposed on us or are less in our control. And we've talked about that when it comes to time and tools. Next, I want to shift our conversation to space constraints. And this is one that comes up very frequently uh, when I'm teaching in conversation. And often the space constraints we face are in terms of the number of slides we're able to have. Uh, you know, I can only have a slide or two slides or five slides. What do I do then? And now I used to work for an exec at Google uh, who had a 10 slide rule, meaning if you got to double digit number of slides, he was going to stop looking at it. And when you consider you had your title slide and you can't go to double digits, so that means your max is nine. Now you've only got eight slides left to deal with. And the challenge is this enforces or encourages some really bad behaviors, right? Because when I only have eight slides, I have the tendency to want to pack as much information onto those slides as physically possible, uh, which runs the risk of then being overwhelming and may not be the best way to get my information across. Um, but that said, there are still things that we can do when it comes to facing space limitations to be effective. Let's actually take the example of a single slide, right? I'm only allowed to have a single slide to communicate what I want to communicate. And so there, I think one planning becomes very important. Um, we'll talk about that more momentarily. Um, but there are some strategies that we can think about using there as well. Because if, if there is the case where we have a single slide and we have a decent amount of content that we want to get on that slide, uh, you want to think about, one, how are you going to be communicating that? Right? Are you there talking through it live, or is it something that's being sent around and consumed on its own? Uh, people typically have a higher tolerance for level of detail if it's something that they're consuming on their own on a piece of paper or on their computer screen in front of them, whereas we have a lower tolerance for detail when it comes to uh, information being presented on the big screen. Uh, and then the real challenge comes up when, when you, you're creating something that needs to meet both of those needs, right? You need to talk through it live, and also it's going to be sent all around and needs to stand on its own. So I think when we're facing that, uh, one thing that can be really helpful are white and transparent boxes, where in the live presentation, you actually cover up or push a lot of things to the background so that you can still focus your audience exactly where you want their attention as you're talking through the details. So if we imagine a slide, a slide has four quadrants, so maybe we would be inclined to put four graphs on that, or maybe three graphs and leave one of the com um, one of the quadrants to add some text. So when I'm talking through that, I could think about covering up three of those quadrants, so I'm only ever focusing on one at a time. And then at the end, I can reveal everything so that we can talk about it and see it all together. And then the nice thing about that is then for the version that gets sent around, you've got all of that uh, context, all of that detail on the single slide. And then, of course, we want to be smart in the words that we use around it, right? How do we tie it together in a way that makes sense? And how do we create visual hierarchy? So the person who's consuming it on their own still has some cues about what's more important and what's less important and uh, the ability to scan 
over what they're looking at and both understand how it fits together and then also get the high-level story of what you're trying to get across. Um, so I think strategically covering things up for the live presentation uh, can work when you have a single slide you're dealing with and high density of information. Another strategy, anytime you're facing limitations in the number of slides, uh, and, and even beyond that, a strategy that I recommend just in general is storyboarding. And for me, so storyboarding is creating a visual outline of your content before you create any actual content. Um, and when we can get it right on paper first, it often leads to shorter decks. Or if we know we have time constraints, then we know sort of how many uh, pieces we can fit within that. And when I storyboard, I have a stack of post-its in front of me. And I write down ideas on those post-it notes with the thought that maybe each of these eventually becomes a slide in my deck. And it can be this sort of nice cathartic process at first where you just get all of the ideas out onto paper without any concern of the order or whether they make it into the final deck. And then every once in a while you step back and you start rearranging and thinking about what's the structure that would help me bring these disparate pieces together? What order should they be in? How do I want my audience to experience the narrative flow that I'm going to go through? And that's the case where when you're limited in the number of slides you have, you can start to group things together or think about what you don't need to have in the deck directly. So for me, one of the really interesting things that happens when we storyboard is this idea of intentional discard. Because uh, I think one of the things that happens when we go straight to our tools, right, PowerPoint or Keynote or insert your favorite slideware application, and we start creating slides is there's this feeling that the deck needs to answer every possible question that might come up, which is not the case. Um, but when we storyboard, and especially going back to that idea of having our big idea, right, the main message we want to get across in mind, now for every bit of content I consider including, I can say, does this help me get my big idea across? And if it doesn't, I can have a discard pile. And I always have a discard pile. I storyboard anytime I'm going to be going through new content or telling a new story. And I'll sometimes write down the same idea five or 10 times and discard it five or 10 times. It takes that process to convince, for me to convince myself that it really doesn't need to be in the deck. Right? I probably still need to know the answer if the question comes up, but not every bit of content needs to be in the deck directly. And so this idea of intentional discard is really interesting to me because I think what that helps uh, or what manifests as uh, part of that is when we take the time to storyboard up front, it actually makes uh, or leads to much shorter decks. And now when we storyboard, there are a number of constraints that we can impose upon ourselves as part of that process. Uh, when we think, for example, uh, about the size of a post-it note, right? Post-it notes are relatively small, which means I can't get a lot of content on there. And I think that is an important thing. It forces me to start high level and keep my thoughts relatively short and concise. And when I storyboard, it's not with the typical sized post-it notes. Uh, rather, it's the small post-it notes. And I sometimes joke in workshops, you know, if we really wanted to get concise, I'd give you the small post-it notes and only Sharpies <laughs> to write on them with. Um, which again, is just this idea of imposing constraints in a way to get us really concise in our thinking. 
And so the size of the post-it note is a constraint where the nice thing about that, I think, when we've got ideas boiled down to their essence in that way, makes it easier for us to look at them all at the same time when they're spread out in front of us and start rearranging and thinking about this flow of how are we going to get from this topic or this piece of content to this next one? Uh, What order do I want my audience to experience this in? Where and when might I include? data? Uh, How might my big idea come up, right? Do I start with it? Do I end with it? Do I start with it and end with it? Where does it come up uh, in the rest of the content? And this planning um, really helps us be ready to face the constraints that end up being imposed on us then by others. And it's interesting because I think in a time-constrained environment, we are less likely to take the time to plan when really that is the most important thing to do in a time-constrained environment. It becomes even more important to take time thinking about our audience, crafting our main message, planning the content, because the benefit we get out of imposing those constraints on ourselves, doing that piece of planning, is that we then have a plan of attack for the rest of the process, and it reduces iterations down the road. So it basically makes the whole rest of the process more efficient. So in terms of closing thoughts on the topic of constraints, when it comes to tools, I recommend getting to know a tool or a set of tools so that they don't become limiting factors or identify an expert uh, who can help you turn the ideas in your head or those you've put on paper into reality. In terms of time and space, impose your own constraints in these areas to get clear and succinct on what you really need to communicate. Doing so will make the external constraints that you face or that come up easier to deal with. Let's shift gears and turn to reader Q&A. I've been encouraging people to submit questions to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Last month, I announced that those who submitted questions chosen for the next podcast, this one, will get a free copy of the recently released Audible version of Storytelling with Data. I received a ton of great questions, too many to answer in a single sitting. Uh, If yours is answered here, stay tuned for some outreach with info on how to get your Audible Storytelling with Data. Everyone else can get copies by visiting Audible or Amazon, so definitely check that out. I also encourage you to keep submitting your questions to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com, and I'll continue to answer those on the podcast over time. Justin writes, Where should I focus first when trying to establish a strong foundation of data visualization training with my analyst team at work? Should I be focusing on only analysts and power users, or would it be good to offer it across the company? This is a great question, and I find that the organizations uh, that I see having the most success in this area take a two-pronged approach, Um, basically just in doing both of the things that you talk about here where they recognize that there is value and power in being able to communicate effectively with data and invest in some awareness building uh, for everyone across the team or the organization, right? Bring everyone sort of up to this um, uh, similar baseline, if you will, give people a common language to use when they're talking about these things and some common best practices. Uh, But then doubling that with selecting a handful or it can be one or two individuals who are going to be your in-house data visualization experts. 
And this can be both a great way of uh, sort of career opportunity for the individual and recognition for the individual, as well as a great resource for the others on the team. And so what you want to do there for those individuals that you're investing in is one, make that an expectation of their job and their role and give them time to be practicing and learning. Uh, and then secondly, figure out how how might they become experts, right? Does it mean they uh, attend an external workshop or are there books or examples um, that they can use to continue to refine their skills? Um, so that dual approach here of, you know, one, uh, creating some common ground for everyone, some awareness, some experience exposure, best practices, common language to use, and then investing in uh, a team or a set of individuals who can be your internal exports uh, can be a nice way because then you have people internally who, you know, when someone's struggling or needs someone to brainstorm with, um, they have the ability to do that right there within your team. Mark writes, Hey, cool. I've been wrestling with the best way to show currency symbols, for example, dollars, euros, or pounds, alongside labels. Sometimes I place them with the values on the axis, but when I do this, I end up repeating the symbols multiple times. For example, 100 pounds, 200 pounds, 300 pounds. The alternative I sometimes use is to put the currency symbol in parentheses at the end of the text label on the axis. For example, average spend per household, pounds, in parentheses. Then this gets confused even more if I then use units. So something like total national spend could have millions of dollars to denote millions of dollars. But if space is not a constraint, is it better to put the text, uh, put in the text or with the value? And yes, I know that the first answer will be, it depends. So interestingly, I don't know if this is a question where I would answer it, it depends. Uh, for me, so you might argue that um, dollar signs or currency symbols are redundant when we put them on every axis label, for example, right? And I'm imagining here a, a y-axis, say it goes from you know, zero pounds in scales of 100 up to 500 pounds. We'd be repeating that pound symbol five times then uh, with each of those numbers. I actually think that's okay and that there are some uh, elements that we need to keep with the numbers they describe. Currency symbols, when it's currency we're talking about, percentage signs with percents, commas in large numbers, these are things that actually help us know what we're looking at. So we don't have to remember we're looking at dollars or pounds or percents. Rather, those um, cues on how to read the data are with the data directly. So I would say even when space is a constraint, I would try to figure out how do you keep those symbols with the data directly. You can push it to the background, right? You can think about making the text gray. Um, but again, I think those are helpful markers that help us um, know how to read the data without having to remember that we're looking at dollars or pounds or percents. Brock writes, while the ideal is to only have one graph per slide, in instances where you must have multiple graphs, when is it okay to use different types of graphs, bar, line, heat map, etc.? And when is it necessary to use the same graph type? My gut instinct is that you should not have multiple graph types if you're asking the audience to compare similar types of data across them. And in this instance, you should also keep the scales consistent, but I'm sure that it's more nuanced than that. 
Yes, uh, there are, will definitely be scenarios where you'll need multiple graphs on the same slide. All uh, right, we talked about that uh, a little bit previously. In general, I'd say if it's something you want your audience to compare across graphs, though, you, you want to try to look for ways to do that in a single graph. Um, my typical guidance is to consider what you want your audience to compare and put those things as close together as possible and align them to a common baseline to make that comparison easy. In other cases, there may be data that you want to show together, uh, for example, on the same slide, but that your audience actually doesn't need to compare across the graphs. And for this, I'd say use the graph type in each case that's going to be the best for illustrating to your audience what you're trying to show. If the data is similar and it makes sense to graph it in a similar way, there can be benefit from that because uh, your audience will figure out how to read the graph once and then subsequent similar graphs become slightly faster to process. Um, though, as you know, you'd want the specifics, uh, for example, the maximum minimum of the y-axis to be the same across the various graphs. Uh, but I wouldn't force the same view if a different graph type is going to make the information easier for your audience to process. Um, it's fine from my perspective to mix graph types. Most important is to have words around the graphs so it's clear to your audience how they relate to each other, what they should take away from each, and so forth. Actually, Elizabeth's latest post on the Storytelling with Data blog, which I'll link to in the show notes, shows a side-by-side -side layout with two different graphs where this is executed well. Kat writes, I'm asked a lot about the use of color when visualizing data. I prefer to be strategic in its use, but I find some audiences only like to engage with rainbows. Any advice on how to convince them otherwise? My view is that color used well is one of your most strategic tools when it comes to the visual design of data. And so I advocate the use of color never to make something colorful, but rather used sparingly to direct your audience's attention to where you want them to look. Uh, in my workshops, we illustrate this uh, through the where are your eyes drawn test. And this is a simple test, which is you create your graph or your slide and you close your eyes or you look away and you look back at it taking note of where your eyes go first, because this is probably where your audience's eyes are going to go first as well. So we do this with a number of images. Uh, one of those images is uh, multicolored balloons, right? It looks like party time. And the point is, when something like that's put in front of you, right, there's so many colors, right, going back to this idea of a rainbow, that you actually have no idea where to look. You're not directed anywhere. Because the challenge in using color to make something colorful is we lose the ability to create sufficient contrast to direct our audience's attention. We actually lose the pre-attentive value of color in that case. Uh, and in my workshops, I'll often contrast that with uh, another image where everything is gray except there is one red balloon. And your attention, when that's put in front of you, goes immediately to that red balloon. Uh, so fast that by the time I start talking about the red balloon, you've already been looking there for a while. And for me, that's this clear illustration of the power of color used sparingly. Um, so Kat, going back to your specific question, I think one way of helping move people away from this idea of using color to make something colorful or interesting is to show the side by side, right? Here's what it looks like colorful. And here's what it looks like if we're sparing in our use of color to direct attention to where we want them to look. 
Um, so I think some people get attached to color as a means for making something look interesting. Uh, better from my perspective is consider the data, right? Why, why, why should your audience be looking at it? What is interesting about the data you're showing? And when we've taken the time to do that, we can use color more strategically. Now, that's for explanatory, right? When we have something specific we want to say. In exploratory data visualization, where we want to create something that our users are exploring, we actually want to stay away from color for the most part. Um, some colors stand out more than others. And so I don't typically recommend using color as a categorical differentiator. Um, but in exploratory analysis, we can think about using color to indicate when something is above or below a threshold or something we need to pay, pay attention to for some reason. Um, and actually, the big book of dashboards, uh, I'll make sure I link to in show notes, is a book that I recommend frequently uh, and has a ton of examples. Um, if you're ever looking to flip through and just see how different people have visualized metrics for uh, use, mainly for exploratory purposes in dashboards, um, it can be a good resource for that. Thanks very much to those who submitted questions. If you have a question, you can email those to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com for potential inclusion in future podcasts. Before we wrap, a couple of updates. Uh, I'm looking forward to a sold-out Seattle Public Workshop in a couple of weeks. And there's actually just one more public storytelling with data workshop with spots remaining in the first half of 2018. That'll take place on April 17th in San Francisco. Uh, details are at storytellingwithdata.com. And if that doesn't work for you, stay tuned as workshops for the second half of 2018 will be announced soon with planned sessions in the Midwest, on the East Coast, and in Europe. The next Storytelling with Data Challenge will be announced Tuesday, April 3rd, and that's 2018, and will run through Monday, April 9th. By way of preview, the focus of the last challenge was a common graph, the basic bar, and we had nearly 90 entries. Be sure to check out the recap post, which I'll link to in the show notes. This time, I'll challenge you to try out something less common. This is a great opportunity to practice flexing your data visualization skills. Stay tuned to the site, storytellingwithdata.com, for full details. And with that... Be sure to follow at Story with Data on Twitter and Instagram. Stay tuned for next time where I'll discuss why I think it's important to say it out loud. Thanks for listening.